Hello, Jacobin Radio listeners, and hello, sports fans. I'm Connor, a new audio editor at the magazine, and today we're introducing a new podcast that we're hoping you'll check out called The Jacobin Sports Show. Each week, the hosts, Matthew Miranda and Jonah Birch, will be discussing the world of sports and bringing you casual conversations with friends, authors, and players. We're going to be dropping the first few episodes here, but if you want to keep listening, please find the separate Jacobin Sports Show feed wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Jacobin Sports or find the link over at the show's new Twitter account, at Jacobin Sports. And as always, give Jacobin Radio a rating on your podcast app. It's a small but super helpful thing. Welcome to the Jacobin Sports Show. This is episode two. Um, I'm Matthew Miranda. I am also with Jonah Birch today, and our producer is Connor Gillies. Um, you can follow the sports show on Twitter at Jacobin Sports. All the cool kids are doing it, so get on while you can. And you can also email us um, any thoughts or questions that you have about the broadcast at jacobinsports at gmail.com. Jonah, it's been about a week. How are you doing? What's new? I'm pretty good, man. How are you? I'm excellent. As I, as I mentioned before, every time we record an episode, the Knicks go on a bit of a winning streak, so... I am always in a good mood when we do these episodes because I just sat through two games that were straight out of 1994. <laughs> they really they destroyed on Sunday. They destroyed the Celtics, and uh, so that was depressing for me. I was not but good torn for up. you. I was not torn up about that. I was also <laughs> happy to see them follow up. So Nick's doing good. Uh, but while we will get certainly to some basketball talk today, I want to first make sure to introduce our special guest, the premier guest. In Jacobin Sports Pod history, that's premier, both meaning first and best. Um, this guest was called the best sports writer in the United States by Robert Lipsight. He has hosted the Edge of Sports podcast as well as the Collision uh, with former NBA player and Syracuse legend Eton Thomas. He has a blog also titled The Edge of Sports. is the author of ten books. The most recent, I believe, published being Jim Brown, Last Man Standing, but as you'll hear later. There's more coming. He has also appeared on ESPN, MSNBC, and Democracy Now. You can find his website at edgeofsports.com, and his Twitter is at edgeofsports. Dave Zirin, welcome to the program. Uh, it's so great to be here. It's an honor to be a guest on the Jacobin Sports Podcast. I'm so stoked that you guys are doing this. And, I mean, I, I just have to start by you know tipping my hat a little bit to Jonah um, just for being a Boston Celtics fan. And I want to explain what I mean by that. Like, I, I am genetically predisposed to hating the Boston Celtics. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in New York City, Knicks fan. I mean, the Celtics just seemed to break my heart as sport. And when I first met Jonah and found out he was a Celtics fan, it was like a serious mark against him. Because I was like, <laughs> what kind of social justice badass would be a fan of this retrograde franchise? And I find it so difficult to dislike this team. And that that is <laughs> such a new feeling for me. It, it's a bizarre feeling that, I, that I'm wrestling with. But when, when you have Jalen Brown in particular, yeah. first and Absolutely. foremost, yeah. and, 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 the, and when you have Jason Tatum, who I, I think I could watch you know, alone in a gym for three hours and be a happy camper – it's it's just very difficult to have that same kind of antipathy, and it's confusing. And I'm working my way through it, and you know, therapy helps. But <laughs> I mean, so this just is a, a, a the tip of the feeling. hat to Jonah. <laughs> I appreciate it. I I really appreciate it. And for us too, it's a a new feeling not to be uh, loathed, you know, by the rest of the country in quite quite the same way. But it is a likable team, and Jalen Brown is likable. And uh, Tatum, of course, is likable, but also, I mean, Kemba Walker, who is from the Bronx, right, I'm sitting in the Bronx yeah. now, he is just like a delightful player and person. And then, uh, you know, everyone's favorite in Boston, Marcus Smart, is, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I just want to live my life the way Marcus Smart plays basketball. So, you know, <laughs> it, uh, it, it's a, it's an enjoyable team. It's true. Um no, we could we could go on about this because like growing up for me, um, 
the Celtics were, of course, Larry Bird. And being fans of Larry Bird meant not only stomping on the hearts of the New York Knicks, but it also meant that, you know, that was the shirt worn by the actor John Savage in Do the Right Thing when, <laughs> you know, when he's on the... When he's on the brownstone and they're like, why don't you go back to Massachusetts? And he goes, I was born in Brooklyn. And they all go, oh, <laughs> you know, it was it was the for us. I mean, it was the, the corniest possible white guy team just because of that one guy from French Lick and that freak Kevin McHale. Uh, and and then Greg Kite was just like uh, horrible Kite. sprinkles oh on God. top of that. <laughs> um, you know, just just everybody was a slap in the face. Scott Wedman slap in the face. Jerry Seesting slap in the face. It just was this like uh, tidal wave of, of of injustice. But then you know, I, like like we're saying, I mean, Jalen Brown is is so special. I mean, it's like I almost like want to do a. GoFundMe for, you know, for bodyguards for Jalen Brown, <laughs> just because he must be protected at all costs for the future of, of the intersection of sports and politics. But I'm sorry, I'm babbling. I'm just excited to be on the show. No, no, totally. I'm happy to to join in on that. Just I just want to mention as a kid who grew up getting into the Knicks right as the Celtics were starting to fade, but my dad had already mm. raised me like with the proper hatred of them. I had a major teenage crisis when Xavier McDaniel left the Knicks and signed with Boston. And that same, I think that same summer, uh, Public Enemy put out an album called Greatest Misses. And on the track called Air Hoodlum, there's a line, it's about a basketball player named Mick. And they say, Mick's so quick at six foot six, down to be picked by anyone but the Celtics. And I felt so (laughs) in that moment that like, like, it wasn't just me, like, I was in a. I lived. I had. We had moved from downstate to this very Irish enclave upstate, where the Celtics were revered, and I needed that reach out from Chuck D to let me know that I was not alone. And and it, it sounds like <laughs> Dave and many other people grew up with that same lesson. Absolutely, because Xavier McDaniel seemed like this is the guy who is the Michael Jordan kryptonite, yep. and you know we almost got them in '93. Uh, and or was it 92 it was 92 it was 92 was the x-man's years 92 and then there was the belief that 93 is us and i I had i'm not i'm not just saying this because of hindsight i had this terrible sinking feeling when it was like okay we lost xavier mcdaniel but we got charles smith (laughs) i remember that that moment feeling this sense of dread And uh, and in the intermediate period, I've met Charles Smith. He's a terrific guy. He was working for the union for a while. So I feel even bad saying that. But it's just like you, you couldn't have two more different players in terms of temper, temperament than X-Man and, and Charles mm-hmm. Smith. Mm-hmm. I mean, now, do we think this is a blast from the past? But didn't yeah, Charles Smith got fouled on the, the famous uh, Smith stuffed, Smith stuffed. Right in ninety the ninety three playoffs, his famous. Everybody moment with of, a soul uh, knows that, but there are other creatures out there maybe who, who, who won't accept it. Yeah, he was blocked four times. I'm convinced block number three was a foul. Yeah. But I've looked at this like it's the Zapruder <laughs> tape, you know, like super slow mo. It's it's a lot to ask of a ref. By the way, I, I gotta give. Even though I had tons of criticisms of the documentary, I gotta tip my hat to La- the Last Dance because it's made discussions like this cool again and not nerddom. Like NBA in the '90s, we can talk about that and be uh-huh. of the moment uh-huh. just because of that documentary. <laughs> a short moment of sun. Yes. Well, I think there's a few things that we want to touch on, uh, and the biggest story, certainly in the last week or so, has been the James Harden trade. Houston sending the former multiple-time scoring champ and MVP to Brooklyn in a four-way deal. The Rockets ended up with Victor Oladipo and four pick swaps, three draft picks, a couple low-level players. Uh, Brooklyn ends up with Harden and had to give up Jared Allen and a few others in the deal. Uh, I have a a thought about what strikes me as most interesting in this trade, but Dave, I'm curious... Uh, either from a basketball perspective or uh, just from a larger narrative perspective, what stood out to you about this move either developing or going through? Well, let's get the joke out of the way, and it's not mine, but it's too good to leave on the table, which is that you know they, they now have three players who are the personification of Brooklyn, the hefty guy with the beard, the conspiracy guy who thinks the earth is flat, and the way-too-tall, skinny guy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, <laughs> 
So they've given us Brooklyn on a plate. Um, but the, the number one thing that I think about uh, is that I think it's going to work. And it surprises me to even say that because I had a re- similar reaction to a lot of folks, which is, you know, how are they going to do this with only one basketball? How are they going to do this given the historic usage rates of these three players? Uh, how are they possibly going to make this work given the tempestuous personalities of them all? Um, it doesn't really matter that they're friends off the court or that they have history because we've seen that blow up in the past, in the very recent past, uh, you know, Harden trying to mesh with Chris Paul and then Russell Westbrook. You know, that was supposed to be similar, like, oh, they're friends, so they'll make it work. But I think they're going to make it work and not to you know, bring everything back to the Boston Celtics, but I, I get this vibe of the Pierce, Garnett, Ray Allen feel where you have people who are doing this and want to be together for the reasons of trying to figure out how to redeem this portion of their careers. Like you have three people who each are desperate to prove something. Harden obviously wanting to win a chip. Uh, Kyrie Irving trying to show that he can do it his way. You know, and take time off and be on Zoom calls with people running, progressives running for the DA of Manhattan, as people might have seen, and, you know, and have and be able to just do it on his own terms. And then Kevin Durant, who has to live with the the cloud over his head that he doesn't really have any championships in the official record books because of doing it through Golden State. So you've got three people who really want to prove something. And of those three, um, Two of them are above average passers, and one of them is a brilliant passer. And so I think they're going to, to figure out a way to make it work. And that's, that wasn't my original instinct about it. So, uh, and, and I know we've only seen it with two of them, but you've already sort of seen that with Harden and Durant, that there, there's a esprit de corps, if you will. They, they, they love figuring out how to make this work together. It's like the game seems interesting to them in a way maybe it didn't before. And so I'm excited to see it and see more of it. Um, and then just what, one last thing is, and this is, I'm not, I'm not trying to do a name drop, but I think it's so smart. Like I remember when uh, the, the Heatles first got together <laughs> with LeBron, Bosch, and, and, and Wade, and I thought that would be an absolute disaster. And I, I mean, my God, was I wrong? I thought it would be like, like, like within a few months. I mean, people would be demanding trades. And I remember asking before the season started. Uh, I asked Greg Anthony um, to do another Nick from the <laughs> from the early nineties, because of course those are the only people with any wisdom. Um, I, I, I asked Greg Anthony, like, "Hey, uh, th- this is just going to crash and burn, isn't it?" And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, absolutely not. This is going to be a success. Um, As long as they're together, they they are competing for championships. And I said, but there's only one ball. And he said, yeah, but the ball has a mind of its own. The ball is like a magnet, and it goes to the player who's going to be the one who needs to be handling and shooting the ball at a given moment when you have players that smart. And in Miami's case, that's going to be LeBron. That's what he said to me. And in this case, it's like just seeing it with Harden and Durant. You see Harden generate these terrific stats, but the ball is running through Durant in terms of he's dropping 40 points in these games because the ball knows where it needs to go. And that's, you know, with KD at the end of the day. Jenna, I want to get your thought in a second, but I want to follow up with Dave on that point. Um, I've been wondering, particularly when Kyrie comes back, what changes and how much it changes. And one reason I've been struggling to, to make sense of this trade. On some level, it feels like there's just such an embarrassment of firepower that possibly Brooklyn has has broken the equation and they're just going to beat everybody 130 to 120 and win the title. But I'm curious, looking back at, at big threes of the past maybe 15 years, in most of those cases, I feel that one of the three stars was able to change their game and sacrifice in order to complement what the other two were giving and what was needed. So when Ray Allen came to Boston, yeah. he took a lesser role than Pearson Garnett, as particularly in terms of creation. He became more of a floor spacer, um, played defense. When Bosch joined up with LeBron and Wade, he lost shots, became more of a, you know, worked on defense, worked on some mid-range stuff. When Kevin Love was with LeBron and Kyrie, you had Kevin Love 
going from a guy who could get 30 and 20 to, all right, I'll stand in the corner and spread stuff out. And even Clay Thompson in Golden State was someone unlike Curry and Durant who didn't really need the ball to create. When I look at Brooklyn, particularly having traded away Jared Allen, and I know the buyout market will, will things will appear, but given that their main need at this point, they have a lot, but defense, rebounding, size seem to be things. It doesn't seem to me like any of the three stars are designed to fill those needs. Like the only one who could is Durant. And obviously you're not going to ask Durant to take the back seat to the other two. So I feel mm-hmm. like next year the Nets are set because in the summer free agents will want to come. Do you feel this year, I look at Milwaukee and I say, okay, Antetokounmpo, great defender. Like you figure you can give Durant some trouble. Drew Holiday, great defender. Middleton, not on that level, but still commands attention on the other end. What What do you see as Brooklyn's likely outcome this year do you think they just have so much because we have joe harris also as a floor spacer do they have enough that this is a different style of play and therefore maybe for the first time ever you can have three stars who their predominant ambition is we're going to put the ball in the basket or i'm going to set someone else up to do it or do you feel like they're close but maybe still not quite enough to deal with the lakers the bucks somebody like that uh, well, I'll answer quickly because I'm curious what Jonah has to say about all that. But I, I'll I'll say that the, the the thing about Brooklyn is that two of these three players have a history of injuries uh, in Durant and Irving. And that means they can make a virtue out of a necessity on any given night and figure out matchups. Maybe one night Durant is the guy who plays even like a Clay Thompson role and stands in the corner. I see Harden doing that. Um, on a majority of occasions, or they they could just you know rotate minutes um, in and out in a way. So on a given night, they could say, Kyrie, tonight you're going to get 35, and he's going to do that. So I think they can work comfortably together. Now the part of the so I actually think that the chances for them to emerge out of the Eastern Conference very high. If I was betting money, that's where I'd go. Um, it would be different if Milwaukee had gotten Bogdanovich in the offseason, mm-hmm. if they hadn't screwed that up. I really do think Milwaukee is just short yeah. a shooter when I watch them. Um, and But I think the thing they did about the trade that really hurts is they traded a 22-year-old Jared Allen. Uh, and Jared Allen is a guy on that team and maybe one of the few guys in the league who could make Anthony Davis sweat a little bit. Yeah. And that's what makes me worry about them going forward um, in terms of like if they play the – I mean there's no guarantee the Lakers make it out of the West. But if the Lakers make it out of the West, I would I would favor the Lakers over Brooklyn. But if it's like some cool wing matchup of them versus the Clippers, for example, then this could be a very, very nice end of the season for Brooklyn. Jonah, what do you think? I mean, I, you know – it was interesting watching this game last night versus Milwaukee, which was a great game. Yes, and and great game. Harden and Durant looked incredible together. You know, without Kyrie, uh, and then you can you can see some of the issues defensively that are shaping up. And uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the the LeBron Heat Heat teams because you know one of the things I was thinking about the comparison there, if anything. This team is more talented offensively. I mean, the the combination of Durant and Harden, I, there's just never been anything quite like it in the NBA. But that team was a defensive juggernaut, you know? I mean, it became, at least it became one. Uh, and they, they figured out, uh, really, they pioneered a lot of the small ball lineups, uh, you know, and that style of play. And part of the reason they could do it was because LeBron and Wade were just so incredible defensively uh and you know this team is going to have um more issues there and they have depth issues and it's not clear that i mean you guys were talking about jared allen that deandre jordan is going to be able to you know fill fill the role of big man i mean they have to find someone else whether it's on the buyout market or um from what i've heard they they were trying to figure out how how to avoid giving up jared allen and obviously that wasn't you know, wasn't going to be a possibility, but they're going to have problems defensively in the playoffs. You know, I think um, would would be the main concern. And, and then, separate and apart from all of that, I I mean, 
it's just such a fascinating collection of people. <laughs> you know, like everything that has happened to bring this team together. Uh, I, you know, it's just ex- I'm excited to watch it. I'm excited to see what happens uh, and what happens with Kyrie, who, you know, gave a press conference today. I don't know if you guys saw that he's coming back uh, and uh, clearly is frustrated, so frustrated with everything, you know, with the media coverage around all of this. I'm interested to hear what you guys think about him. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then also Harden, who who just shot his way out of Houston and pissed the hell out of your guy, John Wall, obviously, mm-hmm. and Boogie, poor Boogie Cousins, who has uh, deserved none of this, you know. <laughs> uh, so anyway, but it's just, you know, and then and then Durant too, who shouldn't have any need for any kind of, you know, redemption catharsis, but clearly is still kind of looking for something in his career. So it, it'll be interesting to see if they can figure out those lineups and defensively, and then just the mesh of personalities and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing I'll say about Durant, you know, having watched him, God, since 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 actually. In this area, because I, I live in the D.C. area, so having watched him since him growing up around here, and always, you know, being amazed by how he looks on the court, I've, I've never seen him more comfortable. I mean, he, he looks, looks incredible, so comfortable yeah, on this. Great. He never really looked. I mean, think about it. he's in his thirties. He's a surefire Hall of Famer. He never looked comfortable in Oklahoma playing alongside Westbrook, in my opinion, while putting up Hall of Fame stats. And that Golden State thing, I mean, it it just never felt. I mean, they were just too talented to be denied, but it never felt like a smooth fit. And seeing him with Harden and even seeing him a little bit with uh, with Kyrie, even if the stats weren't – I mean, even if the wins weren't getting hammered out, I mean, it was like seeing a different kind of Durant, like someone who was at peace with his game and in utter control of his environment. I mean, he dude's averaging 31 points a game. And he's making it look utterly effortless. My man Bradley Beal's averaging 35 a game, and every bucket feels like he's just climbed Mount Everest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just like the, the contrast of seeing them <laughs> and how they're getting their points mm-hmm. is really something. So, yeah, you make, you make some great points there. Um, the, the, the true test is going to be, of course, Kyrie coming back and how he meshes and how he's doing you know, psychologically between his ears. But it just seems like he has full buy-in and is excited to be a part of it. Yeah, I'm curious to get into Kyrie um, yeah. a little bit here, which is the great kind of variable in this otherwise beautiful equation. I am curious, just like with the Harden trade, what has stood out to you the most about either from an on-the-court or off-the-court storyline, the response to Kyrie's actions? I am, I've am. i been especially grossed out by two things Um not that they're surprising, but they're always disappointing. One is this attitude of ownership that fans have voiced that somehow Kyrie Irving is getting away with a, a cardinal sin because he continues to collect a paycheck while he is not at work. And mm-hmm. I, I did the math just to make sure I wasn't crazy, and I don't think I am. So Brooklyn's owner, Joe Sy, is worth $13 billion. I figured out that what Kyrie Irving makes per game, which is about 450000 is point zero 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 three percent of size net worth, which is equivalent if you have fifty thousand dollars to a dollar seventy five. So I'm first just disgusted with the number of people worried about Joe size dollar seventy five in light of Kyrie Irving is not I don't really care what he's out doing, but and this this kind of marries in with my second point there was a lot of reaction I saw that that made it sound as if it wasn't possible for Kyrie Irving, the human being, to be both distraught by the racist capital protests, riots, and 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 I, I understand COVID sensitivities and like I'm not excusing that being at a, a gathering. I'm not saying that, but the idea that he couldn't simultaneously be maybe in a room depressed all day thinking about that disgusting spectacle and take joy in a brief pandemic experience at a family birthday party member. We see this all Mm -hmm. the time and it doesn't seem to matter. I remember after LeBron left, there was this talk about, okay, he's blazed a new trail. Now athletes don't have to, 
And as soon as I think Durant was next, as, as soon as anybody then exercised autonomy, they got the hate too. And now you have Kyrie who, why don't athletes, you know, we want them to be, to speak up, speak to power, use your platform. And here you have a guy who has consistently, not always with the ultimate effect, or maybe hasn't always couched his message perfectly, but there's no question this is a thoughtful athlete who has his attention at times, not just his attention, but will direct his platform to things that matter more than did he get 30 points that night. And I'm just always struck that still it's 2021 and it's you're worried about a billionaire's money and you're worried about it's not possible that Kyrie could be a a complicated enough human being to experience different emotions in the same day. That's the thing that stood out to me and continues to stand out to me the most in the reaction of this case, because it's not like, at least publicly, the Nets have not blasted him. Durant hasn't come out against him. Steve Nash has been very diplomatic. I'm sure there's some element of PR to that, but Dave, do you, does this feel to you like par for the course as far as the reaction publicly? Is there something about it that strikes you as different or more pernicious, or do you think... Oh. You know, like what, what's your take? I think on there's this? definitely something. I think there's definitely something more pernicious about this. Um, you know, uh, James Baldwin once said that um, America is a country devoted to the death of the paradox, hmm. and I, I use that quote a lot to talk about why uh, people were so outraged by Muhammad Ali not being merely a boxer. Um, and actually, I think the author uh, Gerald Early um, uh, did did the same. In, in trying to like explain why Ali made people so upset. And it is, there is something um, maddening and a little bit depressing that in 2021, you know, despite all the, you know, personal branding that the NBA encourages their athletes to do, and despite, you know, all the things we hear about social media and access and being an individual and now use your platform and yes, we're pro social justice and all the rest of it, like how they still try to, pound every square peg into a round hole and Kyrie is his own person um, I joked about it before but actually I thought it was probably one of the coolest things I'd seen since the players strikes in August when I saw that there was this big zoom for Tene Abushi who's running for DA yes. in Manhattan on a really progressive yes. platform and um and it's like this zoom of about you know 30 40 people and then in the in the side you know, listening in is Kai Irving. And that's what it said at the bottom of his little Zoom. Kai Irving. K-A-I Irving. And I mean, I thought that was terrific. And this was at the time where there was so much heat around the fact that he wasn't playing. And it's like, well, this is what he's doing. And you you said it all. Like, given COVID, uh, given what happened at the Capitol, and I'm in D.C., and it was as harrowing you know, it's like 15 minutes from my house. It's as harrowing as you can imagine. Of course, I'd understand why he doesn't want to play basketball. But it gives you an idea about the ugliness of the response and that you could have an NBA media member as esteemed as Jackie McMullen. Oh, God. Say yeah. Joseph Sy owns Kyrie Irving. Yep. yep. I mean, it's that same mentality that that had Larry Johnson calling himself a $40 million slave that had a Kevin Porter Jr. this week yep. uh, yelling at Kobe Altman, this feels like modern day slavery. And you have particularly like white media members and fans scoff at that and criticize that. But when these players are made to feel like they don't have control over their own labor and made to feel like property, that's the response that you're going to get. And that's yet another reason why I think this Brooklyn Nets team is so interesting and why I think they'll go far in that. And again, I thought you said this really well in that, you know, for all this talk of player empowerment, there's still when, when players actually do try to flex it, you see a very different kind of reaction emerge <laughs> often. And if it's not done in the right NBA kind of way, like we want you to be a social justice activist, but we want you to wear this special T-shirt that says vote, you know, and it's like, be yourself, but be yourself our way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. totally. Yeah. And Education reform. It's like, yeah. and, and in this particular case, though, you've got the three players who have been dinged up the most for asserting themselves. 
and saying, I'm going to try to do this my own way. Like, like James Harden said, Houston's not good enough to compete for a championship. And people acted like, you know, he threw a stink bomb in church <laughs> when what he did was tell the truth. And exactly. Yeah. You know, that, that's, and, and he just figured, you know, said like, this isn't where I want to be in my thirties. You know, I want to be somewhere that's not rebuilding with a new coach. And people are like, well, how dare he? It's like, well, no, that's what player empowerment is. Uh, similarly, Durant choosing to play in Brooklyn and similarly Kyrie, of course, in charting his own destiny in all kinds of ways. So, you know, so, so I, I think the, the anti Kyrie hordes are kind of telling on themselves and, really telling some of the truth about the underbelly, about the difference between woke marketing and woke capitalism and the actuality of when a player actually tries to assert themselves in that context. Yeah. Jonah, thoughts on any of the Kyrie situation? Well, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, as again, as a Celtics fan, someone coming from the Boston situation, I, you know, it was so... Um, he left under such a cloud in Boston, mm-hmm. and it was such a negative experience the way that team, which had very high expectations, kind of fell apart. And, there, you know, there's a degree to which um, Kyrie set himself up for, for some of the backlash. And I think James Harden did as well, differently. And forget all the, you know, the... Um, ridiculous stuff about the 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 flat earth stuff which i you know clearly he was was some kind of troll but he wanted out of cleveland to get away from lebron to have you know to get a, a team that was going to be more suited to him and so he got that and kind of proclaimed himself the the leader of the team from the beginning and set himself up as um, this is kind of my team. Um, and, and you know, the, there were a lot of issues that were not his fault on that team uh, at all. But I, I think had trouble figuring out how to deal with it when things started to fall apart. And then he, you know, he um, he goes to the Brooklyn team and it's complicated. He, he doesn't want to talk to the media. I get it. He feels he's annoyed. He's pissed at the media. Um, and feels like he's been misinterpreted and maligned. But it also means that when a situation like this happens, it's just going to be the narrative is going to be created by people who do not like you. You know what I mean? And, and don't want, um, you know, don't want to see you succeed, I would say. Uh, and so that's a, you know, it's a difficult, a difficult uh, situation to be in. Now, what I will say is that forget the political stuff for a second. And clearly Kyrie has, I I mean, in the bubble, he was uh, someone who was a leading voice, um, supposedly, you know, kind of behind the scenes and how to deal with the, the protests and respond to the George Floyd situation last summer. And then as you're talking about, he, he clearly is someone who wants to be engaged politically. But the other thing I would say is that, you know, for all the attacks that he gets and all the ways in which he, um, you know, gets criticized in publicly. And if you go on Twitter, you're going to find a lot of very conflicting views, obviously, maybe about everything, but particularly about Kyrie. Uh, but he he obviously has the respect of other players. Right. And that's still the case. Even when he came back to Boston, people who there was a lot of speculation, he had a lot of tension with. You know, they were they they looked like they were they were friends, essentially, you know, when when you saw them interact on the court. People like Jalen Brown, who there he had a lot of conflict with in Boston. And then, uh, uh, you know, like you're talking about, Matt, um, you know, KD is still in his corner, obviously. You know, the the other players around the league seem to have a lot of respect for Kyrie. And that that tells you something, I think. Right. I mean, it says something. Um that he's not the uh, he's not necessarily the the personality he's been portrayed as uh, publicly. And if, if there's one thing I, I want to add to that is like I also feel like John Wall is perfectly within his rights to say, "Oh, you don't want to be here? Well, fuck you then." Yeah, you know yeah, what I'm yeah. saying. And and it's like it's like these Tartan, Irving, and Durant these are tempestuous geniuses. And if some of their colleagues find them too tempestuous to deal with, I mean, I think we've all kind of been there. Mm-hmm. 
you know, be, like tried to organize or, yeah, or sure. work with people who we thought were brilliant, but maybe not team players, mm-hmm. as it were. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that can be really frustrating. And I respect John Wall and Boogie for expressing that frustration openly. But it's definitely, definitely, definitely not the media's role to then step in and be like, yeah, John Wall's right. Fuck you. You know, you're owned by Joseph Tsai. And you, it's like, whoa, you sure. are telling on yourself right now. It's like if For players sure. want to have that discussion, I get it because they're the ones who have to live with it. But, you know, you're reporting on it. And the, the, I think the correct reporting posture on this is, hey, you wanted player empowerment. This is what it actually looks like in practice. Yep. I feel like the jokes about James Harden's social life are – one of the few things that Twitter really does well. You know what I mean? And then I truly appreciate about social media. <laughs> One thing just to wrap the heart and thing that I have found very interesting is how, and I think this touches with what Dave is saying, the willingness to amplify the we're not good enough quote as this, ooh, like you, you caught him, you know, talking at a turn and now we have a scandal versus the very muted over the last couple of years talk about the fact that when Les Alexander sold the team to the new owner, who I think his name is Tillman Fertitta, um, yeah, who Ugh. one of his first moves was to let Trevor Reza go because he didn't want to pay the luxury tax money that would have yep. cost. He, he bought a team that was on the verge of beating like the dynasty of the last however many years in Golden mm-hmm. State. And immediately the owner stopped spending money. A year later, just about a year later, uh, Mike D'Antoni can't wait to get out of there fast enough. Mm-hmm. And there's there's no – you don't see that talked about in the press. But exactly. Harden making a comment that every single basketball pundit knew the day they traded for Russell Westbrook, which is this team's not good enough to win a title the way they are now. It's always interesting to me just what gets amplified and what doesn't by the press, uh, the, the free independent press. Uh, speaking of Golden State, this is one other NBA question I wanted to ask you guys about. Um, last night, the Warriors had an excellent second-half comeback to get a win over the Lakers. Uh, they started out 2-3, and three, but have won 5 of 8 since then in a tough stretch of games. They played Portland, they played the Clippers twice, uh, they played Denver, and then obviously last night, the Lakers. Steph has, particularly of late, looked a lot more like he did uh, before he broke his hand last season. Kelly Oubre started slowly, but he's been improving I'm curious how good you both think this team is and can be. Is this a title contender that's just a healthy Clay Thompson away from being elite? Or do you see a team where Draymond Green's shot is pretty much disappeared and Andrew Wiggins is owed still $65 million and they have Wiseman and they have Minnesota's top three protected pick. They have their own pick protected this year, one through 20 in a supposedly stacked draft class, do you think the Warriors are a team that should be pointing towards restocking and rebuilding? Or do you think there's enough there now or in the very near future, assuming Clay returns healthily, that they should still be viewing themselves as an elite title contender? Mm, You first, Jonah. What do you think? Um, You know, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I love Steph Curry and I love watching him play. So I'm really glad he's uh, he's back. I, you know, I, I think um, they were hoping to do both a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And then the clay injury obviously yeah. put them in a difficult situation, and they maybe overpaid for Kelly Oubre. But, um, you know, I, the, Wiseman looks like he's going to be a real player, huh? Uh, and he could, he could shoot and, uh, you know... So, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know how far they can go this year in the Western Conference, but... I, I think they um, they they're a team that that depending on how Clay comes back, yeah, could compete in the next couple of years. I guess would be my instinct. Yeah, I Dave? think this year's this year's a wash. I think losing Clay was was a huge huge gut punch. The way the Lakers dominated them in the first quarter last night was pretty much the way I thought the team would be all year. Which is if if Steph isn't shooting lights out, they're going to get dominated but then as the game went on you saw the contours of what could be a 500 playoff team and i think that that's their that's that that's their limit but that's actually a good thing because of the picks they have because wiseman looks really good 
And yeah. I'd be so stoked if he was on the the Wizards, for example. It would it would make me such a happy camper right now. Um, because of all of that, I think they could actually do perform. You know, one of the most difficult things to perform in in basketball, which is be a team that when Clay comes back, if all is well, um, can be a top three Western Conference team. While allowing Curry to to age gracefully out and have players like Wiseman take to the forefront, I mean, I think they're just they're they're just I, I hate this expression, but it it does feel like they're playing chess while the league is playing checkers in terms of of of, of having an authentic rebuild on display while they're also able to beat the Lakers on MLK Day in a marquee game. Well, Joe Lacob did say. I think right after the Durant transaction that they were light years ahead of all the other front offices. So hopefully for Golden State, that can continue even without Kevin Durant there. But I think he makes that look a lot easier. Mm. Uh, let's transition to from the NBA to um, the world of film, particularly sports oh. in film and society. And we wanted to take a chance, um, Dave, to speak with you about uh, the film that's on Amazon right now, One Night in Miami, uh, which was directed by the wonderful Regina King. Uh, the film is based on a stage play by Kemp Powers, and it centers on a, a fictionalized meeting between Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and James Brown in Malcolm's hotel room the night after then Cassius Clay uh, wins the heavyweight championship by knocking out Sonny Liston. Much of the film features the four debating different points of view on their feelings and approaches to black empowerment, to American racism, and in particular, their roles and responsibilities as famous and powerful black men who live in both worlds. Dave, you've written a biography of James Brown. Uh, what was your take, if you've seen the film, on the film's portrayal of him, the other characters, what the film to you feels like it's trying to do in general? Did it seem authentic to at least the James Brown that you're familiar with? Well, first of all, I wrote about Jim Brown. I, w- I wish I could write about yeah. James oh Brown. Oh, my God. You know, ha! <laughs> Jump back when I kiss myself. Half our audience right now is like, oh my God, I had no, <laughs> no. idea. James <laughs> yes, Jim Brown, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I spent uh, a lot of years working on this thing about Jim Brown. And um, and I got to interview Jim Brown for, for the book. And the book is basically, a lot of it is just a, an argument about how Jim Brown's form of very right-wing black nationalism can be a very slippery slope to the point where he ends up in Trump's Oval Office uh, blasting John Lewis, that there's actually a connection between these two things. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and that, that, that there's, there's a way to – because a lot of people were like, I don't understand. How could Jim Brown end up supporting Trump? And it's like, well, actually it makes sense if you look at his politics over the course of 50, 60 years – it's like yeah. this has always been where his politics have been. And then try to answer the question in the book also, well, then why is he revered as this kind of liberationist figure, this even revolutionary type figure? And it's like, well, that's part of black nationalism also, you know, because you are you are standing up against racism inherently, even at its most right wing variants. And so try, so it's like I use the book as a way to explain that. And I don't want to shock you guys, but it wasn't exactly a big seller. Uh, <laughs> to do, I'm going to do a Jim Brown book and do a me- meditation about right wing black nationalism. That didn't quite uh, sing to the audience, but I'm proud of the book. And you know what? Um, maybe after the film and in light of Trump's ascent, maybe that second pu- that second publication, that second publication, is- we'll, we'll roll through. Um, and I, but also the thing about the book that I'm proud of is I got to, one thing is that. You know, Jim Brown's, of course, the only person left alive from that one night in Miami where you had Sam Cooke, Malcolm X, uh, Jim Brown, um, and of course, uh, Muhammad Ali all in that room together. Um, And just a remarkable array of people in this small hotel in Miami uh, after Muhammad Ali, as Cassius Clay, shocked the world and beat Sonny Liston. Uh, and nobody really knows what was said in that room. But I got to interview Jim Brown about it. And be, at, at, when he was, I think Jim Brown was 78 or 79 when I spoke to him. And he t- told me what happened in the room. And a lot of what he said did, I felt like, hew to stuff that was in the film. Because the, he, like the central tension of the film and the central tension of what Jim Brown was saying to me was that Malcolm is in this position where he's both – trying to encourage 
uh, Muhammad Ali to become a Muslim and to join the Nation of Islam while also leaving the Nation of Islam. Yeah, and yeah. so and, that is that it. That sounds tense. Yes, yeah. very tense. <laughs> and, and and the very next day, uh, Muhammad Ali is telling the world that he's in the Nation of Islam and he's being given the name Muhammad Ali at, at a big celebration yeah. with Elijah Muhammad. That's the next day, and the night before, uh, Malcolm is even. And this is what Jim Brown told me, which I thought was like like intense. Is that Malcolm is both giving him encouragement. While also just sort of feeling out the idea of like, hey, I might not be long for this group. Do you think you might come with me and build this other organization? And what Jim Brown said was that – and this is a little different from the movie, but that's okay because the film is is an imagining of what was talked about. Uh, But what what Jim Brown said to me was that uh, Ali was asking him – to run a lot of interference with Malcolm that night, you know, take him into the other room, talk to him. So he wouldn't have to confront the fact that he knew he was going to split from him. Now the movie is much more tempestuous of, you know, like it's this big reveal three quarters of the way through where Malcolm's like, I'm leaving and Ali gets, gets enraged and has to be held back physically. And so it's, it's much more intense and um, in watching the film, you, you would never know things like um, Ali's complete disavowal of, Ma- of Malcolm as soon as he joins sure. the nation. And wow. Ali calling that later one of the great regrets of his life. And, you know, there's another little Ali tidbit that wasn't revealed until after Ali died, which is that after Malcolm was assassinated, Ali spent years uh, forging a private relationship with uh, Malcolm's daughters, sending them money. You know, supporting them however he could. You know, that was kept very much in secret because it conceivably could have threatened Ali's life. It certainly would have threatened his relationship with the nation. And what's so interesting about the film, and this happens a lot with these kinds of historical films like this, is that it has like a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's getting lauded across the board. Um, And yet it has very intense criticism going on online of it, of how it presented Sam Cooke, for example, of liberties it took with some of the historical timings of uh, of showing Mal- – and this, this happened also when Mar- Manning Marable's book came out about Malcolm X, of showing an incredibly human Malcolm X who was really struggling and suffering. And I thought all of that made the film truly beautiful. Um, it, it also – is something that's brought out a lot of critics. So I thought, I mean, so just if you ask me what I thought, like I thought the film was a triumph as an imagining of what took place. But at the same time, I also understand and respect that people revere these folks, absolutely revere them. And so, and when someone takes somebody who's an icon and brings them off the pedestal, it can, it can engender a pretty, a pretty angry reaction. I was very struck by how much they were able, how much King uh, King's adaptation of the play humanizes. You can make a film about any one of these people, and you would have a spotlight, everyone ready to jump on any deviation or any decision mm-hmm. that they don't care for. She does it with four of them. Yeah, um, oh my, yeah, it's a great point. And I, as someone who, I, you know, I've, I've read Malcolm X's the Alex Haley biography several times and have studied him and really admire him seeing him presented in a very vulnerable human way. Didn't in no way did it diminish any of his strength or any of his greatness. I, I, I really loved King's ability to handle four men, all of whom are revered potentially as powerful in very classically um, like his hetero male ways. And yet they were all, beautiful and vulnerable and flawed and unsure about things and still at the end strong and together and i i was really impressed by by how that came out with all of them in the film i almost think for historical purposes i guess this will be my critique that a coda might have been worth it like saying that you know you have this incredible meeting of these four people who look like they're about to shape the world and two of them are dead within a year yep and and then you take it to, of course, Ali being amazing in the 60s, but then being only embraced by white America after he was silenced 
through Parkinson's and repeated blows to the head. And then Jim Brown, of course, with his own journey, which was filled with instances of, of horrific instances of violence against women and and, and just like this very um, ugly road that he went on that ended him in the in the clutches of Donald Trump is that she, I mean, Regina King, she makes a conscious choice to end it on the most positive possible note or uplifting possible note with the changes going to come, you know, being sung yeah. at the end, even, you know, even with, with the sort of the, 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 the note of Malcolm running out of his house, which is on fire. She, she didn't feel like she needed to show the Audubon ballroom. She didn't need to show him being shot and killed. And I, I, I really think that that that's, maybe it's not the choice I would have made, but it's an incredibly brave choice. To look yeah. at these four men and what happened to them and then say, you know, but we still build on their accomplishments and we look forward. I mean, maybe I'm just too coveted out, but the idea of having a film about these four men that actually has a hopeful ending and makes you feel like like change is possible and we can build on what they they fought for. I thought that was a brave choice. You know, so I, I thought the tension between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke was very interesting, and I had no idea they had that kind of relationship. But also what you're talking about with Jim Brown, I mean, it's fascinating to think about, uh, you know, people today, if they know who Jim Brown is, maybe showing up with Kanye West to meet with uh, Trump, you know, is what they know about. I, now, I remember even after his playing career. I mean, wasn't there a famous Dick Cavett show where he is there with, like, Lester Maddox, the governor of Georgia? I'm, I, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about from Absolutely. the 70s? Yep. And gets in this argument and, and the segregationist governor of Georgia storms off. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was an uh, important uh, political figure for, for that mm-hmm. era and particularly for civil rights, black power uh, figure. Is that That's absolutely you, accurate. You, but he was somebody who is this... I mean, he's he's so interesting to me. I guess, like I said, I don't I don't know if other people find this as interesting. And for a lot of folks, like his his history of violence against women makes it something where even examining his history is like, well, this person, there's nothing really to learn there. And I I certainly understand that that people almost as a you know like like wipe that clean because of his personal history. But there is something remarkable about somebody who could command an audience with Huey Newton and endorse Richard Nixon in 1968. That is, that's, that's complicated. And be, and be that guy. And not, you know, I, I poured through the black press in 68 where a lot of prominent black entertainers actually endorsed Nixon, people like Sammy Davis Jr., James Brown, the aforementioned. And there are these columns criticizing them, but nobody criticizes Jim Brown. Nobody huh. criticizes Jim Brown. It's like he had this stature and this strength. Like the way he played football was black power. Leaving the NFL at age 29 was black power. Starting these black economic unions was black power. Walking the streets of Cleveland after the the hellacious riots that took place in Cleveland or uprising, we could call it, you know, just walking the streets, you know, I mean, and, and trying to figure out how to invest money back in Cleveland for people that was black power. It's just that there's, you know, it's, it's like there's connective tissue with that kind of black power and, and uprising and revolution and hope and all of these wonderful things that I think we would celebrate, but there's also connective tissue between that kind of black power and Trump's oval office. That both of these things exist. And that that's what I sort of tried to tease out in the book. And I would have, you know, obviously being a sort of a Jim Brown freakazoid that I am, I would have loved to have that teased out more in the film itself. Um, you know, speaking about like those different kinds of approaches and debating nationalism and struggle versus nationalism and building up a business and economic base. And are these things really a versus situation? How do they walk hand in hand? How are they at different? Like, uh, but, but the debates that they did decide to show, of course, were amazing. The, the one thing also, and this is what's just upsetting folks is like Sam Cooke is, sort of the stand-in for somebody who wasn't really a part of the struggle but was doing stuff behind the scenes. Like, people are not happy with that because, you know, Sam Cooke had actually recorded Change is Gonna Come before that night. Hmm. And so so that that kind of bugs some folks who are Sam Cooke-ophiles. But to them, I would just say, 
enjoy the film as the imagining for what it is and watch the terrific one hour and 10 minute documentary on Netflix. Uh, I think it's called the, the two deaths of Sam or the two killings of Sam Cook. It's called something like that. And, and that'll give you an idea of the political Sam Cook. So do, do both. Cool. Uh, speaking of connective tissue and movements rising up, what can you tell us about your newest work, uh, The Kaepernick Effect? Yeah, I'll, I'll be brief. I know we've gone on. I don't want to keep you guys. I'm sure yeah. you have lives. I mean, as for me, I'm just like, hey, a break from my kids. Yeah. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's talk. Um, it's like human contact. Um, right. See, I, I, I wrote it during the, the, the pandemic, and it was actually very, very easy to do because I needed to talk to a ton of people between the ages of 16 and 22, and they were all home. So <laughs> it's like, like, like yeah, it would normally be very difficult getting in <laughs> touch with people like that. They were all just sitting around bored and, and happy to talk. Um, and I, I just, I interviewed a ton of folks who they saw cat, they're athletes in high school and college. And I also interviewed a couple pros like Megan Rapino and Eric Reed. Nice. But, but, it, but the book is primarily centered around these young folks. And they saw Kaepernick take a knee and it gave them a language to express their own disgust about police violence. And it gave, and it sort of gave them permission to use athletics as a space to express that disgust. And so they, yeah. they went forward and they took that knee. And then invariably they received backlashes that they did not expect. Problems with teammates, problems with coaches, problems with broader community, uh, some very scary threats of violence, both either at the games themselves, like stuff that never made the news or anything, but someone in a small town takes a knee. And the next thing you know, someone's rushing the bench and has to be held off by two people. Wow. And that, you know, stuff that, wow, you know, crazy. didn't make a viral video or anything. And, and the game yeah, itself yeah. probably had 50 fans at it. Like I talked to a lot of folks like that. And the, the book is, as I'm writing this book, you know, like first, um, God, you had, you had all the killings before George Floyd first, like Ahmaud uh, Arbery being killed and yep. Breonna Taylor's case. And, and then George Floyd gets killed. And, of course, you have the largest uh, social justice protests in the history of the United States hitting all 50 states, like in terms of sheer numbers, biggest ever and happening during a pandemic. And so now I then went back and talked to a bunch of the people I interviewed and found out a lot of them were in this, not only a lot of them were in the streets, but a lot of them were getting phone calls from coaches who blasted them for doing it a couple years earlier and are saying, are asking for forgiveness based on the demonstrations. Like I got a lot of stories like that. And so that, that was very intense. The other thing I got out of doing the book is realizing, you know, this is hard for me to realize as a guy, you know, in his 40s writing this book like this. But like for people who are like 22, it's like Trayvon Martin is there, Emmett Till. I mean, that that psychologically scarred this generation of young people who were 12, 13 years old when that happened and felt to themselves that this world is in this country is fundamentally racist. And it it gave them – it planted a seed in them that when Kaepernick took that knee, they were like, yes, this is, this is the language that I'm going to pick up and this is what I'm going to do mm-hmm. with my platform as an athlete. That sounds – that sounds like a great read. When do you um, – any ideas when we might expect to be able to see that book published? Yeah, they're, they're, it's with the, the new press and they made the decision. They said they wanted to hold it for fall. So it could come out. I thought I thought you were going to ask if he has any idea when Kaepernick is going to be back in the league. Oh, that- but uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which would be uh, that's a tougher question, huh? You know. Yeah, that's not happening. I don't think it ain't happening. Uh, it ain't happening. No, if if if, uh, if Eric Bieniemy can't get a head coaching job, then Sorry. Colin Kaepernick is not playing in the NFL. Um, in Houston. Well, at yeah. least Chad Henney is still out there. Yeah, Eric Bieniemy could get hired in Houston. That is correct. That is correct. But yeah. it's, I just can't believe it's taken this long. Yeah, Chad Henney. Yeah, for sure. You turn Chad Henney into somebody who takes you deep into the playoffs. You you deserve you know to be the commissioner. Uh, okay, so Jonah, anything else that you want to ask or comment on? No, no, Dave. Thank you. You know, it's been great. 
it's nice to catch up and uh yeah definitely great to see you oh i don't think i actually said it the book's out fall of 2021 Fall 2021, The Kaepernick yeah. Effect by Dave Zirin. And, and I just, you know, I love that Jacobin decided to take this on. Um, and if, if you ever uh, want to have me back, I would uh, be back with bells on. So. Awesome. Absolutely. Thank you, Dave, for being here. This was episode two of the Jacobin Sports Show. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Jacobin Sports and email us any thoughts or questions, especially the nice ones at jacobinsports at gmail.com thank you Dave and thank you Jonah and we will see you again in about a week everybody thanks guys take care bye bye